Subtitle is made possible in part by a major grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities, exploring the human endeavor. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective. It's a warm, sunny afternoon. Central Park is teeming with people, strolling, chatting, flirting, laughing. And in one particular spot, a couple of New Yorkers are talking about grammar. Okay, well, let's discuss the semicolon first. Let's do it. Okay. Do you not use any? No, I just use them. I'm like, I'm not sure I'm doing this right. And I Google, I'm like, I think I am, but you know. And I've heard that it's softer than a period, yet harder than a um, hello. A comma. (laughs) Even though it's a lighthearted chat, you can sense the anxiety. That one woman, her name is Raquel, she just forgot the word comma. Plain forgot it. Also, what she said before, I'm not sure I'm doing this right. That's grammar anxiety. We all have it. Well, everyone I know has it, except for one person. The other person in this conversation, Ellen Jovin. Because you don't often use the semicolon in the same place you use the comma. I mean, in traditional writing. If you're writing lyric poetry, you can do whatever you feel like. Got it. Semicolon, done. They move on to something else Raquel is uncertain about, the ellipsis. Ellen is reassuring. The ellipsis is like crazy lands. I don't really use it that much. Do you use it a lot? I feel like I use it sometimes when I'm, I'm saying something and it's kind of open-ended and it could just kind of go on into wherever. Or I'm saying it in the middle of a sentence where I'm, I'm kind of concluding a thought after it. Right, but it sounds like you're using it mostly in sort of informal ways. Is that true? Because then it really doesn't matter. Who gives a shit? (laughs) Laughter is one of the best tonics for grammar anxiety. And there's always plenty of it at Ellen's table. Yes, table. Ellen is sitting behind one in a nice patch of shade along one of Central Park's wide walkways. You know, the the research paper ellipsis. But I don't use it to be nasty. Some people are like, I thought you meant it dot, dot, dot. You know, like, I don't do that. Ellen's table has a bunch of books on it, dictionaries and other reference guides, and a handmade sign hanging off the front. It says, grammar table. And around those words are a bunch of suggestions for passers-by. Ask a question. Vent. Semicolon phobia, that's all one word. And my favorite, apostrophes, followed, of course, by an exclamation point. Raquel seems delighted with Ellen's soothing advice. She has one last question. Um, Just a general question is, what do you feel most people have needed with regards to grammar? A sense of psychological (laughs) well-being. You're funny. Thank you for stopping by. Stop by again. From Quiet Juice and the Linguistic Society of America, this is Subtitle, stories about languages and the people who speak them. In this episode, if there's a cure for our grammar anxiety, this table may be it. I'm Ellen Joven. I have been a writer or a teacher of writing for my pretty much my entire professional life. So I teach things like email etiquette, business writing, grammar, editing, you know, the like the nerdy word stuff. I wanted to know how Ellen became the fearless, funny grammarian that she is today. So not to be overly Freudian here, but we had to start at the beginning. 
When I think of my first early memories, the chunk of them that I remember from age maybe three to three to four, like the really scanty ones, there's a lot of language in there. For example, I remember learning to spell cat and dog, even though I don't think I really knew how to write yet. And I remember being in the backseat of the car saying C-A-T-D-O-G, C-A-T-D-O-G, because I was interested. So I would have been very young then. And then I remember learning to write the alphabet and I wrote it all over the page instead of in order like you would normally when you write. I just remember it feeling like art and fun. I'm still very messy in my note-taking. It goes all over the page in different directions. I just feel like there's a, a continuum from early childhood fascination with language. I mean, I don't remember that much else. Those are very central in my like five early memories. You know, a lot of times people complain about, oh, you shouldn't teach kids grammar because they'll lose their joy of language. I feel like some of these discussions are so reductive. My exposure to language at school was so broad. We did so much reading. We memorized poems. I mean, I wrote poems and I would read them aloud in class. And I hope that wasn't too annoying to my classmates, but I totally loved it. But then I also had tons of drilling. We wrote spelling lists every single day, as far as I can remember, throughout school. I loved repetition, and there was a way, I think, that it helped me learn to caress words, like it was a little person that I was connected to. And so it's very real and very full for me. Eighth grade was a pivotal experience for me because we did sentence diagramming then. I loved it so much, and it helped me, for, for people who don't know, the basics are you, you have a horizontal line. So let's say you have a simple sentence like, I petted the dog. Okay, so the subject goes on the left of this horizontal line, then you draw a vertical line dramatically through that horizontal line, then petted the verb goes right after that to the right of the subject, then you draw a shorter line that only goes to that base horizontal line, and then the dog is the object, so the dog goes next on the right of that line, and then you put the the on a diagonal line below it. Whoa, even with Ellen's example, which is a really simple sentence, I'm lost. But I'm so glad her brain works that way, or has been trained to. She's doing the heavy lifting for the rest of us. There was a link for me between the art of the sentence and the grammar of the sentence. Why does this sentence have this kind of effect? Was it too long? Did it have too many clauses? There's a lot of information for me that comes through the grammar into the style. I'm guessing that maybe the difference between you and some other people who are sort of thrown by that technique is that you would take that on board as a sort of a building block, a learning tool to writing well, whereas other people would just look at this thing in front of them and they'd be kind of paralyzed by it. That actually makes me sad that people have that kind of experience because language is, it's just so magical. I mean, the fact that it exists, that we're sitting here having this conversation right now, how cool is that? I know, it's brilliant. We're making these weird sounds and we both understand them. And I, I think sometimes kids aren't lucky. They don't get the, the teachers that are best for them and the teaching approaches that are best for them. And some of us are just different. We love different things. We're inspired by different things. I think I'm now sort of 
understanding how your mind works and how the types of education that you responded to. Because I didn't go through any of this stuff at all. I mean, I, I was taught grammar in an incredibly poor way. And so I just sort of, well, I, I was barely taught any at all. And I think I just picked it up along the way. So I think I'm very much a kind of intuitive I read a lot. I read a huge amount of fiction. And so I copied that and intuited certain things. And like when there's a pause, they put a comma in and things like right. that. I don't, I haven't figured out why. And I think a, maybe quite a few people are like that. Well, your experience seems to me to be far more common. Although I have a question for you. Do you, do you, are you sure you remember how much grammar you got? Would you really know for sure? Because a lot of people don't remember what they did in school. Yeah, I didn't get any grammar. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, I had very, very poor schooling on that, that side of things. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've emailed you and it seemed to be going quite well in the, in the email. <laughs> but here's the other thing is that, I mean, not to make this about me, but I did go into radio. <laughs> And I went into radio before the days of the internet when there were transcriptions and when things would kind of follow you online and all of this. I went into a medium where, where you just did something on the radio and it never came back to bite you. You could write down a script whichever way you want. In fact, it was encouraged for you to write not according to any standardized grammar, but a way that would have you read it most naturally. So we would do all kinds of things. We, ellipsis. We used ellipsis to a ridiculous degree. Horribly. I had to get rid of my ellipsis addiction. I feel, I feel we should mention right now that I'm actually wearing an ellipsis t-shirt. The t-shirt has one big ellipsis on it, and that is it. So this feels... I feel I dressed in a thematically appropriate way for our conversation. You're wearing an ellipsis t-shirt <laughs> and I'm wearing a, a t-shirt with the name of the capital of Moldova, Chisinau, with a couple of diacritical marks on it. I know. I'm, I'm actually pretty excited about the diacritical marks. <laughs> we, we all have just such diacritical envy in, in the English-speaking world, right? We've been having this conversation in Ellen's home office on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Late in the afternoon, when people are just getting off work, Ellen says it's time to take the grammar table out. On the way to Central Park, she shows me one of her old spots, right on Broadway, outside a subway station. This is where I first set up, like right there and right here. But as you can see, it's kind of hard now because often that guy's there. <laughs> <laughs> it really, like, I, don't, I get tired of yelling. He's really there a lot now. So we walk on. But even in Central Park, it's hard to find a quiet spot. There are buskers. There are choppers. There are tourists posing for group shots. But eventually, we find a spot that's not too loud with decent foot traffic. After the break, Ellen, or as she sometimes calls herself, some random lady on the street, takes questions at her table. Jumping in here to tell you about another podcast you might check out. It's called All Ears English. This is a great podcast for anyone looking for a new and fun way to learn American English. 
Hosts Lindsay McMahon and Michelle Kaplan will help you navigate vocab and idioms and, very important, American English small talk. All Ears English is an English as a second language podcast for immediate to advanced English learners from around the world. But frankly, I, a native English speaker, I have started listening and I'm learning a ton too. Join the community to learn to speak American English as if you were born in the shadow of the Statue of Liberty. As Lindsay and Michelle say, it's about connection, not perfection. Subscribe to All Ears English wherever you're listening right now. Hi, welcome to Grammar Table. I'm, I'm really interested in how language changes. Yes. My question is, I felt like there was no word called addicting before. It was addictive or it wasn't addictive. Mm -hmm. But recently, I've started to hear people saying, oh, it's so addicting. So do you use addicting yourself? No, I don't. Oh, okay. Not at all. Yeah. I refuse to. I mean, it does make sense, logically. Addicting, addictive. Yeah, why not? It's addicting. It's tempting. Is Isn't it kind of similar? But you, we don't say it's temptive. I don't look for logic and consistency, and because of that, my life is much simpler. Because language is messy. I mean, you can't count on... The English language is. The French language is contained. Contained. It is supervised more. It's supervised. I've actually, I've written to the French authorities on a French grammar question and gotten a specific answer on what's right and wrong. And look what you're stuck with, some random lady on the street. What was it that was missing in your life that, <laughs> that that made you pick up a table and take it outside and, and a chair and sit down and answer people's queries? I wish I had a better and more specific answer to that. I had already been spending all this time for years involved in language learning, you know, teaching grammar. And then when social media and the internet became more a part, well, that sounds very old. That sounds really old school when the internet happened. But really, I think it was when social media happened that my language life kind of changed and became more, the tentacles reached farther into the world. I was able to talk to people all over the world about different languages, languages they spoke, languages I wanted to know, nerd out about grammar, have more exposure to different Englishes, you know, to different varieties of English. I mean, it was very joyous. I was in a giant Facebook group for polyglots and linguophiles, and we could talk We could talk about the most obscure things. I'd never been able to do that. Online life has been great to me, but it's also been hard for me, just like for many, as it has been for many other people. It's just, you can you can get weird in the head. I think we are meant to talk to each other and look at each other's faces and interact and punch each other, you know, playfully in the shoulder. That's fun for me. Oh, and I also love small talk. It sounds you get plenty of all of that. <laughs> I do. Small talk is huge talk. I like writing online because I feel like I can, you know, I am a writer and I feel very comfortable expressing myself in writing. But things still, it's not the same. It's not the same. And it's also bad for you physically. We need more exercise. So now I get to carry a table all over the place. It's really good for biceps. It is kind of cool to get to carry stuff around. It's good for you. <laughs> 
I mean, I don't know. Most people, I think, walk the dog or something. <laughs> Go to the gym. They don't. They don't carry a table and a chair and a sign that says grammar table. Don't forget the cart because I have to have something to carry the books. When I first started going out, they were lighter because I didn't have that many. But I kept thinking of more things that I really needed to make the table complete. So I have a whole rolling cart, actually, that comes too. So there's a whole thing. Ellen and her husband, Brent Johnson, have actually taken all that gear around the country. Do you have any grammar questions? You know, the reason I came to Middlebury was because of languages. You know, I'm, I've always been a That's Vermont. Fan and, in and this is California, Venice Beach. Here, okay, like say you're writing a paper and you're quoting a quote from a book. Yep. But it's a dialogue quote. Do you do the quotations? Plus the other one are like... The plan was to stage grammar table sessions in all 50 states. Ellen and Brent made it to all but three of them. Weirdly, Connecticut, right next door, was one of them. But then COVID hit. We were in the South at the end, and uh, I think we got home in mid-January, and then pretty soon after that, all, all hell broke loose. And you never made it to Connecticut all the time. <laughs> I didn't. We didn't make it to Hawaii, Alaska, or Connecticut. Connecticut was right there. It just seemed like we could go any time. Okay, but you're going to go to Hawaii and Alaska before you go to Connecticut, right? <laughs> During the pandemic, Ellen and Brandt pivoted. Ellen wrote a book about the grammar table called Rebel with a Clause. Great title. And Brandt logged hundreds of hours of grammar table encounters around the country for a film he's working on. Like this moment from New Orleans. Hi, welcome to Grammar Table. Hello, so I have a question. This is something I vaguely remember learning in school, but it yes. feels weird using now because I don't know if I learned it right. So if you have a word that ends in an S and you need to do... Um, a possessive? A possessive. Yes, are you talking about a name in particular? Yeah, you put the apostrophe at the end. Charles is... Ah, uh, apostrophes. I thought we might get through this episode without mentioning those dispute starters. I don't mean to diminish arguments that people have over grammar because they mean an awful lot to people. And I've certainly had my disagreements with people over points of grammar, ill-informed on all sides. But I wonder after you've sort of learned about grammar, whether people kind of talking about apostrophes just really matters all that much. Oh, does it seem sort of banal or, or tiresome? Here's an example that is actually tied to apostrophes. I learned Danish. I speak pretty good. I speak better Danish than any other language apart from English. Why did you learn Danish? My university, the University of East Anglia, had all these Scandinavian languages, Norwegian, Swedish, and Danish. So I then started interviewing. I interviewed everybody who'd done their years abroad in Norway, Sweden, and Denmark to try and figure out which would be the best. I mean, it was just no contest. I needed to go to Denmark. I went to Denmark and I had such a good time in Denmark. I <laughs> deferred, spent a second year over there and nearly didn't go back to school. So you had a grammar party in Denmark and then you decided to do Danish. Yeah, oh boy, I had a two-year grammar party in Denmark, <laughs> in Copenhagen, yeah. The thing with Danish and the apostrophe is that the Danes do not, have apostrophes. Mm -hmm. Quick clarification here, so you don't have to write in to let me know what I've just said is garbage. Apostrophes are used in Danish in kind of different ways from in English, and never in the kind of example that I'm about to give Ellen, like you needed to know that. I was just blown away. I'm like, oh, 
I don't have to learn this stuff. So, but they have genitive case endings, right? What's a genitive case That's ending? That's so possessive. Don't they add something at the end to show a possessive? Peter's more Peter's mother. What happens with the the Peter? So what? It it's just it an written? S at the end. It's just an S. No apostrophe. Mm-hmm. This was just like wow. This is great. This is so simple. The apostrophe thing and the hyphen thing in English really irritate people. They're not happy about those things. But I don't know. I mean, I do I do understand why they don't like it, but I like it so much. <laughs> so it's it's hard. I mean, I can't relate to the emotion. I understand that it's annoying to people. I actually taught a writing class this week at a company where there weren't that many hyphens where I would expect them, you know, in the written material I looked at. And so I went over some hyphen stuff. People really did not like it. They did not want to hyphenate. You know, at least some of them really had hyphen antipathy. Hyphen antipathy, apostrophe atrocity, Oxford comma absolutism. Ellen's come across it all. Is this, I wonder, why people approach Ellen at the table? To tell her what they think is proper usage and what isn't? Or do they secretly want to be told to change their grammar habits? Like being told by a dentist to floss more. There are other possibilities too. They may just need someone to listen to them to hear out their frustrations with language. Or they may be seeking a referee. Those are some of my favorite ones when people come up really determined to win an argument. I just think it's funny. And you know, none of it's malicious. No one's being malicious with anyone. I mean, I guess it happens, but but not, I haven't seen it at the table. And the joy or the humorous despair, depending on the outcome of you know what my answer is, um, I just find it really funny. You've made it clear that the table itself is a sort of open thing, and it's something that should be everybody's open. Nobody's judging. Well, maybe they are, but you're not. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's not like a trip to the dentist. No, I hope not. But you know what? The reality is, the people who never come up to me. I clearly never talked to. So the people that come up to me, that's a self-selecting group. They're willing to talk to me. So I wish I did have more access to the interior monologue of people who look at me and swiftly walk by and try not to make eye contact. What about then, there's some therapy there, isn't there? I don't want to be sued for giving unlicensed therapy. (laughs) But I think... Because words are connected to our humanity, there is a component of of comfort, I hope. The way I feel about this is genuinely positive. So I, I guess so in that sense, yes. Yeah, it definitely seems that some people leave the table, even if they don't get the answers that they were seeking, that they leave the table buoyed, like spiritually buoyed. It definitely leaves me feeling that way. Just from a purely selfish point of view, this is great therapy for me. <laughs> the thing is about a grammar table, it's so it is generally unexpected. It's not something that people expect to see. And I think there's humor. So they're not coming up to me with, you know, very official, serious demeanor. Usually they're usually coming up already kind of laughing. And that sets the tone for the whole thing. I actually still feel silly when I set it up because there's a lot of there's shenanigans. You have you have to unfold it. You know, people think people who do things on the street are weird, so they think I'm a weirdo. I want something. I you know maybe I'm trying to sell them a a lottery ticket to a 
dictionary extravaganza. I don't know what they think I'm doing. So You're some kind of linguistic that... shaman or something. Right? <laughs> There's a religion aspect to it. So. Well, I mean, I am often right where the Jehovah's Witnesses would normally sit. Right. Do they ever come up to you if they're sort of bored at their tables? I was approached once when I was in their spot because they kind of wanted to know when I was going to leave. <laughs> they didn't want any tips, grammar tips. They, well, it was cloaked as a grammar tip. The person came up to me and asked me about the possessive of Jesus and Moses. So we discussed that. But his behavior was not quite, it was a little bit strange. So I realized that he was with this large group of, of people with Jehovah's Witness literature. So I said, do you really care about this or do you just want my spot? And he confessed that he was not fully there for the apostrophes. So Not fully there for the apostrophes. <laughs> Isn't that a great alternative title for Ellen's book? Nah, her title's better. I'll say it again, Rebel with a Clause. It's out this summer. Fun fact, Ellen Joven has studied 25 languages besides English, just because. Huge thanks to her and to her husband, Brent Johnson, for their time. Thanks also to Alison Reed and everyone at the Linguistic Society of America, and to Tina Toby, our sound designer, and Alison Shaw, who manages our social media newsletter. Quick note on those, the newsletter comes out every couple of weeks. We keep it short and newsy and a bit jokey. You can sign up for it at subtitlepod.com slash newsletter. That's subtitlepod.com slash newsletter. As for social media, we're on Facebook, Insta, and mainly on Twitter, where you can follow us at LingoPod. Subtitle is a member of the Hub and Spoke Audio Collective. We're a bunch of podcasters who are all dedicated to telling stories about stuff that you're unlikely to come across in other places. Here's one of the other Hub and Spoke offerings, The Lonely Palette. It's the podcast that returns art history to the masses one object at a time. Some episodes are about artworks you've heard of, others are less well known. But I can assure you, host Tamar Abishai will have you scrambling to check all of these artworks out. That's what I did with the latest episode, which features Sarah Z's installation, Fallen Sky, which is really something else. Listen to The Lonely Palette and all of the Hub and Spoke podcasts at hubspokeaudio.org or wherever you're listening right now. Thanks for listening. We're taking a brief summer break, Northern Hemisphere summer. We'll be back in September with a bunch of new subtitle episodes. See you then. Subtitle is made possible in part by a major grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities, exploring the human endeavor. Hub and Spoke, Audio Collective.